Hi, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to USAID's Twitter space. My, oh wait, hang on, sorry. <laughs> on the Twitter mobile application or on your desktop browser, you should see a few buttons in the space. For captions, you can hit the settings button or the button with three dots. We want to dedicate much of the session to hear from the journalists. So we'll be keeping the audience microphones off, but that doesn't mean that we do not want to hear from you. Uh, please feel free to tweet or comment, um, or you can direct message at USAID Europe, some questions throughout the conversation. World Press Freedom Day is a chance for us to remind ourselves of the importance of media freedom, how vital it is to the functioning of democratic societies, how its absence affects people living in authoritarian regimes. And it's a day when we can talk about why press freedom matters, when we can shine a light on media working in incredibly difficult situations. It's a chance to reflect on the sacrifices that have been made and to remember the people who have lost their lives in the course of reporting the truth. I'm delighted to be co-hosting today's panel with Administrator Samantha Power, uh, who will talk about USAID's commitment to supporting freedom of speech. I'm also very glad that three incredibly talented Ukrainian journalists are joining us for this discussion, Angelina Karyakina, who is head of news at Ukraine's public service broadcaster, uh, which is also called Suspilne, Oksana Romanyuk, director of the Institute of Mass Information, and Volodymyr Yermolenko, who is the editor-in-chief of Ukraine World, run by Internews Ukraine. Administrator Power, greetings to you. I'm so glad that we are focusing on media in Ukraine today. It's great to be here uh, with you and with all of these remarkable journalists on this day of all days. But every day in Ukraine is Press Freedom Day. Uh, we have to bear that in mind. It's my one-year anniversary as USAID Administrator and uh, could not imagine spending it on a more important topic. Um, we thought uh, that it might be appropriate to um, have a a moment's silence uh, in order to um, show some respect for fallen journalists. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I want to ask you, Administrator Power, um, a question about um, USAID's uh, role in, in today and, and how USAID views the importance of freedom of the press in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, thank you so much for this question. And again, I'm, I'm humbled uh, to be among uh, the journalists in Ukraine who are continuing to tell what is a, uh, an extremely difficult story to tell, um, a harrowing one, a searing one, um, but one that is absolutely critical 
uh, for people in the country, in the region, and around the world to hear. Um, let, me, let me step back, if I could, on USAID's role. And I, I would note that there are a lot of actors who have supported independent media in Ukraine over the years, uh, including, of course, uh, from the European Union. Um, but prior to the invasion, uh, our media program in Ukraine was implemented, as you well know, by, by Internews. And the emphasis was on, you know, knowing there had not been a long tradition of independent, uh, high-quality investigative journalism, independent media. Uh, we uh, emphasized strengthening that sector together, we and, and Internews. And that involved, you know, legal reforms, regulatory reforms, looking at financial viability, which now seems... Uh, a luxury, right, to be having discussions about market shares and so forth, as we were able to do before the war, um, providing legal assistance to journalists when uh, oligarchs or others came after them, and expanding media literacy in the population because the flood of disinformation, of course, did not begin um, in, in late February when the war began. This has been a longstanding phenomenon, and of course, the war in 2014 was accompanied by uh, an, an onslaught uh, of misinformation across the country as Russia tried to build support for its uh, fake account of what was happening in Crimea and then the Donbass. Um, we are now up to supporting 148 regional and local media outlets. And on the war itself, I would say it's just all the more important because First, again, massive disinformation. Uh, Russia still thinks it can win an information war, notwithstanding all of the evidence of atrocities and aggression that they are leaving in their wake, that the forces are leaving in their wake. Um, and it is Ukrainian journalists who are, uh, whether through social media or through more traditional publications or through television, which I'll come to, and I know we'll hear from our uh, public service broadcaster colleague uh, here in a minute, um, but they're just telling the truth. It's fact-based journalism, and it's getting out and getting picked up by outlets all around the world. So that's critical. Second, they're providing news you can use. Uh, from the earliest days of the war, providing information on where to find bomb shelters in your town or your city, uh, how to tell if information is trustworthy or not, what an evacuation route uh, looks like, or a border crossing, how long a delay you might find at a, at a border crossing. So this kind of fact gathering and propagation of those facts like really matters for, for the citizens uh, of the country. I also think the journalistic reporting is going to um, provide a foundation for some of the war crimes investigations that go forward. And so that's, again, back to just telling the truth, gathering the facts, gathering the evidence, a uh, number of journalists have been trained in in how to do that differently, how to how to report in light of the fact that it may one day end up in a courtroom uh, and be used uh, as part of a prosecution. Um, and then uh, the other thing USAID is doing uh, with our partners is just trying to get basic protective gear uh, to reporters. Uh, so a couple hundred flak jackets and helmets to journalists, you know, nearly more than 700 tactical first aid kits. And, you know, we, we are hearing the demand signals from our colleagues about, about what they need, what they want. One of the most encouraging, this will be my last point, um, aspects of what the journalists themselves have done and then hopefully uh, the utility of some of the support from the outside 
is that, you know, we've seen Ukraine's public service broadcasters strengthen its viewership here during this conflict as people look for facts and truth and, and look to move away from these disinformation sources. And so I was very struck in preparing actually for this call to learn that uh, the UAPBC has now hit more than 1 million Telegram subscribers, which is an increase, I gather, of 2,329%. And we've seen increases for the public service service broadcaster also on Facebook, Viber, and and YouTube over the same period. So that's our job to make sure that people can tell the truth without fear of retribution. We know how many journalists have been killed already in this conflict, offering protection where we can, training uh, where we can, and financial support, knowing that as you know, residential areas are bombarded and, and people are displaced, it gets harder and harder to make ends meet and to pay the bills. And so making sure we look out for basic livelihoods as well. Thank you. Thanks very much for that. You, you make a, a very good case for uh, why this type of, of uh, technical assistance and, and, and moral and financial support is uh, so important to people. I think both on the, the fact-checking and the news you can use and, and investigations of the, of the war crimes uh, that are being uncovered um, and also just supporting journalists to be able to continue to do that work. And uh, it's true, it's an amazing result um, that the public service broadcaster has had over the last period. I think a lot of uh, independent media have seen a boost in their audience figures because people are obviously looking um, harder for reliable news and information. And I'd like to use the opportunity to go over to Angelina. Angelina Karyakina, you took over as the head of news at Suspina two years ago. And in that time, you've launched a totally new newsroom and you were steadily building a loyal online news audience. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive escalation in the war with Russia. And you've seen this huge growth in your audiences across all platforms. Because um, obviously, people are turning to Suspinla because they believe it's a reliable and professional provider of information. Can you talk a little bit about what challenges you faced managing reporting teams in all of Ukraine's regions with so many of them badly affected by the war? Thank you so much, Gillian. Thank you, Administrator Power and uh, all the participants. Um, let me just start with um, giving just a little understanding to our listeners what this day, the World Press Freedom Day, is, is for us, for, for Ukrainians and for the media today, uh, Tuesday. It's, it's, an, assault, it's a, an assault against Azov steel plant in Mariupol. It's a day where our colleagues say goodbye to our colleague Vira Hirich, who was killed by a Russian rocket several days ago in Kiev in her apartment. It's a day uh, of a constant shellings of Kharkiv and Donbass. So it's something that we face actually uh, in our lives and in our professional work um, each day. This is how this day, World Press Freedom Day, uh, looks for us. So it's really important. And thank you for that, Gillian, starting this uh, conversation with a, a minute of silence. Um, we actually, we were starting this year with moving and opening up our new multimedia newsroom here in Kiev, in Krishatik. Uh, and uh, of course, um, our operations were just starting, we were just adjusting our multimedia workflow across the whole country. So the full out invasion 
came at the moment where we just readjusting our work in the region. The paradox and probably, or rather, I would say good calculation, um, led to the fact that we were lucky to have the strongest newsrooms actually uh, in the most affected regions. So uh, Sumy, Kharkiv, Chernihiv, um, Kherson, uh, these are the newsrooms that uh, didn't, you know, wait for any specific um, handbooks or guidelines. These were the teams who started working, uh, who started working and still keep keep on their work uh, in the field um, right now. Um, I uh, we, we were able to see that the the work that we were trying to um, build in the regional newsrooms specifically developing regional uh, audiences, developing regional platforms, is, is what we've got in the end as a good result. Um, actually, we, we had this um, conversation for a long time and this discussion for a long time, and there's an anecdote. We compare ourselves to ambulances, which you don't call each day, but when you need it, it should be there and it should operate properly. So this is what happened to our strongest newsrooms in the most affected regions. Uh, the the audiences, uh, which Administrative Power already mentioned, the, the number that really skyrocketed, uh, it didn't just grow, you know, because people uh, were interested in the events. Uh, it's, it's the trust that these specific regional broadcasters were building for years and years and years. This is a joint number that we have of, of our audiences. It's not just only, you know, regional audiences. It's the, the, re, the, the audiences across the whole country. But what I have to say is, um, of course, uh, we, we've gone through a number of, of challenges, starting from working uh, directly under the shellings, evacuating our families, evacuating our, uh, our uh, workers, shortage of water, electricity, you know, products and everything, but probably uh, most tragic and most challenging for us still with all those challenges is working under occupation. We still have um, a number of journalists. Um, some of them went missing, like a journalist in Mariupol. We still cannot get in touch with her uh, since the early March. And we really hope that she's safe with her family. Um, but at the same time, we still have uh, journalists, we still have cameramen and other people, I won't go into details, working from uh, southern Ukraine and working from uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, now unfortunately undercover um, and informing us on, on what is happening uh, in, all, in all the cities. What, what really differs for us in this situation, and I need to stress that this war didn't start on February 24th, it's the eighth year of war. And of course, we sort of had to get used to the fact that some of our journalists are working undercover in the occupied uh, Donetsk and Lugansk and also in Crimea. But this specific situation um, brought us to the fact that after Bucha, we were able to see what this occupation can really bring. And I really have to share this um, with you. I, um, after Bucha was released and after, you know, after all the pictures that we were able to see, everything that took place there, I got several calls from our teams in occupied cities and villages just asking us, what are we going to do if, I mean, we've seen what this occupation brings. It's, it's something that we cannot compare it to, you know, other, other cases. We understand that this, is a, that this is a cruel and violent occupation, you know, without 
any rules, without any communication, without any possibility for people um, to negotiate leaving their homes, negotiate um, exchange of prisoners, negotiate exchange of journalists or activists or anything um, like that. Uh, I have to say this is something that our teams are still living with, you know, this understanding and this, um, th th this reality that living under Russian occupation is a direct um, life threat. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to you and to your colleagues for the work that you do. Uh, let me turn, because we are talking about atrocities and, um, and investigations into that um, human rights abuses, um, uh, to Oksana Romanyuk. The, the Institute of Mass Information is a, a media watchdog that focuses on the performance of online media. And the Institute was, I guess, best known for producing regular media monitoring reports, tracking violations of journalists' rights, fighting against impunity for crimes of violence against journalists, and also publishing a whitelist, hailing the best online media with the highest editorial standards. I know that everybody was always clamoring to be on that list and that when media outlets moved down a position, Oksana, you'd get these phone calls asking that how do I get up back to the top um, spaces? And it feels like you went from doing those things to becoming a kind of one-stop shop for everything a Ukraine-based journalist needs to cover frontline fighting. Your organization has been amazing, coordinating so many different groups, but basically incredibly effective at getting hard-to-procure military-grade flat jackets and helmets and tactical first-aid kits to journalists working in the most hostile environments in the war. Could you talk a bit about how you made that switch? Well, um, thank you, dear Gillian. Our life radically, just dramatically changed on February 24, because, you know, on February 23, our draft law on protection of journalists' rights was registered in Parliament we were planning to release another monitoring. We had a lot of working groups. We had normal life. And the next day, I was packing my son and I was driving away from Kyiv uh, because uh, the shelling was close to our district. The sky was red. There were sh like blast heard and um, I understood that for us the top priority now will be safety and protection of all journalists who will cover the situation in Ukraine because it is Im extremely important for the world to understand what is going on here, to know this fact, to know that this is the war and to know um, about the consequences of this war, about causes of this war. So uh, I was driving and I was, I had like tears on my face, but I was calling all the time to everybody I could reach and say, we need safety equipment, we need flag jackets, we need 
as soon as possible. And uh, here I want to thank really amazing team of Internews Network, which was very, very quick and responsive. And uh, also to um, teams of uh, Reporters Without Borders and OST, IMS, uh, to really very supportive um, organizations who responded and uh, thanks to whom we have already uh, provided around uh, 500 Ukrainian journalists with protective equipment, not only Ukrainian, but also foreign journalists. And I also want to thank our just amazing network of regional uh, representatives and journalists because before the war we focused on you know professional standards on monitoring or we had working groups with police we um, investigated cases of attacks on journalists and we had to turn into a logistics network because our task was to build channels of supply uh, of this safety equipment from um, uh, abroad into Ukraine. So we quickly built channels from Romania, from Poland, and then we had to distribute this equipment around the country. In the conditions, you can imagine that there is a really very big shortage of uh, petrol or gasoline. And uh, nobody understood how it can work, how uh, this military uh, equipment can be transported. So we uh, found volunteers and we uh, managed to bring it to the front lines. At the same time, our representatives, they um, appeared to be in temporary occupied territories. They we lost also connection with our representative in Mariupol, but fortunately she managed to get out and we are very happy to know that she is alive and she is in safe place now. But um, at the same time, um, I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, this um, very motivated team and which not also not only uh, focuses on um, defending journalists' safety, but also um, we are very uh, focused now on documenting of crimes uh, committed by Russia against media and journalists in Ukraine. Um, we have documented 243 crimes that were committed by Russia. And we work with uh, local uh, law enforcement agencies to uh, rope it up for the International Criminal Court in Hague, because Russia is targeting non-combatants. It is shelling into TV towers in Ukraine, like they uh, tried to create blackout and to uh, shell uh, 11 TV towers, which are 100% civic objects. They commit really a huge crime against democracy, against freedom of expression, against uh, like the basic values, which uh, are very important for all of us to rise and to defend. Today, in this day, in the day of the press freedom, I think we should um, all rise and defend freedom of expression, because this is what differs uh, democracy 
from dictatorship, from totalitarianism. When Russia enters temporary occupied territories, it tries to cut, to shut uh, local media, regional media. They try to occupy um, these uh, media offices. They try to switch off uh, Ukrainian broadcasting and to introduce their one-voice Kremlin propaganda. Uh, I know that regional offices, they prefer just to sh uh, close and to fire uh, all their employees, but not to yield to this censorship. I know that uh, FSB enters the regions with already prepared lists of journalists and activists they want to punish and to capture. And uh, I, I really admire the braveness the professionalism of journalists and media, both Ukrainian and foreign journalists who work now in Ukraine because their work is extremely important. They, um, the world should see what is uh, going on here in Ukraine, uh, the way it is. So uh, today uh, I want to thank professional and independent journalism because it is very important for um, the democracy and for all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and it's a it's also a, a good chance to talk to somebody who who thinks about the role of journalism and media in society from uh, perhaps a, a more thoughtful perspective than than some of the rest of us. Uh, uh, this is for you, Volodymyr. Uh, Internews Ukraine is a non-profit that's been focusing on media, communications, education, and mentoring in the country since 1996. And one of its projects is Ukraine World, a project you lead, an English language multimedia initiative about Ukraine, which produces articles, podcasts, video explainers, books, and it has a 10 million monthly audience across the English speaking world in social media. Uh, Volodymyr Yermolenko is a philosopher, a writer and a journalist and also the editor-in-chief of Ukraine World. Volodymyr, what does it mean to be a philosopher and a journalist? What does the philosophical perspective bring to this work that you do? And can you tell us a little bit about the purpose of Ukraine World? Thank you, Gillian, and uh, thank you, Administrator, for <clears throat> organizing this, uh, this discussion. Well, I think... Uh, the journalists and philosophers can uh, can combine efforts because I think the task, the, one of the major tasks of the journalism is to tell the truth about here and now, what's happening here and now. One of the major tasks of a philosopher is to tell the truth about what's happening always and everywhere, or I would say repeatedly in, in different places. So, of course, uh, while reporting, we also try to generalize. We also try to see some uh, laws or see some causes, some reasons for what's going on. And I have a, a few conclusions out of what we have experienced right now. Let me just draw three of these conclusions. The first is that, well, uh, the, the topic that we, that we touched upon already, the topic of disinformation. And it's uh, one of the conclusions is that Russia is waging a war not only against Ukraine, not only against Ukrainians, but against the reality itself. So it has constructed this uh, vision of the world since the 90s, in which a virtual world can really beat the real world. 
And I would say this is one of the key Russian strengths, but also the key Russian weaknesses, because uh, it shows right now that Russia is a victim of its own disinformation. It is precisely because it was covering Ukraine, Europe, United States, all the world with disinformation. It, it also was kind of a prisoner of disinformation to itself. And therefore, we, we see right now uh, Russian leaders who are disinformed about their own army, disinformed about Ukraine, disinformed about the Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian capacity to resist. So I think one of the conclusions of this uh, horrible war is that truth is stronger than lies, is that democracy is stronger than authoritarianism, because one of the strengths of Ukrainian society is precisely this democratic element, this grassroots element, this decentralized element, where, for example, the volunteer movement is just based upon the horizontal horizontal connections between people and not vertical connections of power and domination. The second conclusion that I make is that uh, we have to say goodbye to our naive uh, vision of history in which we thought maybe and many, many people in the West also thought that the technological progress, economical progress leads to moral progress. We have seen this kind of naive uh, and utopian maybe vision of the world since the 90s. And uh, this was exemplified in, uh, in a belief that, for example, the crimes uh, like Holocaust will not repeat, that they will not come back, that the, the humanity... Uh, has learned on it. And unfortunately, we see right now that uh, they are coming back, the atrocities are coming back, and that uh, there is no moral progress, that any possible horrible evil that can be imagined can can uh, turn back. Uh, Angelina mentioned Bucha. We visited Bucha a few days ago just to also to talk to witnesses and to see what, what is now. Of course, it's not like, like at the moment when uh, Ukrainians came in and when foreign journalists have, have taken all these horrible pictures. But it's still, you can still feel this this wound. And when you see the cars, civilian cars, which were just uh, shooted and shelled indiscriminately, when you, when you see witnesses' reports about tortures, you know, in the houses, when, when people were sent to basements and uh, on the first, second floor, they were really tortured, torture rooms with screams and with everything you can imagine. When you see reports, when you hear people uh, saying that basically uh, 400 uh, something deaths in Bucha were mostly of them were uh, killed with bullets. So they were not victims of, uh, of uh, airstrikes or missile strikes, missile attacks. They were killed with purpose, uh, with bullets. And uh, of course, I, I, I really agree with my colleagues who are saying that, look, we, we can expect much more from the occupied territories. We really know very little of what was happening in, in what was happening in Mariupol. What's what's now is going to happen in Kherson Oblast. In Kherson, we see the many, many reports that there are hundreds of, of people already in the basements, etc. And this is this is this is shows us that evil is real, it come back in it came back. And we have to face it. And the last probably conclusion for, for this short introduction is that uh, the civilized world, the democratic world was very good in, in uh, denouncing and condemning the evils of the 20th century, but it was kind of a selective in its condemnation of evil. Uh, it, it did, it did uh, 
condemned Nazism and fascism. It didn't condemn uh, to the needed extent Stalinism and all this Russian authoritarian tradition. Uh, this cruelty that we, we are seeing right now has deep roots, deep roots, and one of these roots is also the uh, the lack of condemnation of, of Stalinism and uh, of this Stalinist version of communism, which we see right now coming back, unfortunately, in Russia and in uh, territories which are now occupied. Administrator Power, uh, would you like to, to jump in here? Absolutely. First of all, just, just thanks to the three of you for your work and, and for your testimonies. I feel like you're bringing us there, as you always do. Um, I guess I have a question as somebody who's far away and has the luxury of distance, um, but is also a consumer of the international press. Um, what are you seeing in the, in the coverage of the war that the international press is missing? You know, what do you feel like uh, international correspondents are getting right and what are they getting wrong or what would you like them to see that they seem not to be seeing? And I say that as somebody who started her career as a war correspondent. Um, so I have a, a longstanding interest in that question because I, I, I certainly know um, the coverage is rarely coverage at the time in the in the first pass is rarely what we look back and wish wish we had made it. But um, curious about your views and seeing it from the inside. Whom should we start with? I could go first, um, if you don't mind. Uh, a first, uh, probably point. Uh, I just I've, I've been asked uh, quite frequently by foreign colleagues uh, a question, which I would really like to to answer now <clears throat> in this conversation as well. Whether I mean, how do you cover? the war being yourself Ukrainian and being like a part of the story? How do you do those stories being part of the story? I, I, I really wanted uh, to point out that the fact that we are really part of the story doesn't make us less professional. I mean, we do have, um, we do have emotions. We, some of us lost their homes. Some of us lost their loved ones. Many of us like literally probably the majority of us had to move across the country and uh, move out from their homes. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't really make us biased in a way that, I mean, this, this old um, standard um, situation in which you need to take position doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really uh, play any role uh, right now because there is an obvious position. The truth is out there. And the, the fact is that you need to report truth and doesn't really um, make makes us less professional or poses, so to say, a professional challenge for us. This this is one thing that I get frequently asked uh, by, by the foreign media. The second point is that um, many ask about President Zelensky uh, doing a great job leading the country, which is, I, I think, also an obvious fact. But at the same time, the country is leading the country as well. I think one of the points that is missed uh, when you travel across the country, when you go to different villages and cities, when you go to south, east, you know, west and north, and you talk to different people, you see how enormously 
uh, how joined Ukraine is, how united Ukraine is, former political opponents and foes, former business rivals, uh, former, you know, uh, enemies on, on diff- in different, different spheres, um, lots of uh, different communities, uh, Armenians, Jews, Crimean Tatars, all of them uh, fighting together and doing everything that could be done uh, in this sense, working in Ukraine and covering uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine is for reporters is, um, is extremely interesting. I don't want to sound cynical, but it's interesting because the, the number of the stories and the examples of courage, bravery and solidarity and humanity, there are so many of them. On one hand, you have this enormous number of uh, Russian war crimes, and what we need to do is document them. I mean, this first wave of documenting is probably gone now, so people are just now going deeper into the stories, and it's something that naturally comes when you work as a reporter. But at the same time, uh, I think this this perspective uh, on Ukraine as a uh, as a country which complies of different communities, different parties, extremely vivid and extremely different, different, um, which differs from you know region to region and from political uh, political party to political party. This is this is really interesting when you get to speak to different people, to a rabbi in Dnipro, you know, and to an activist in in Chernihiv, how how united they are. Thank you very much. Um, Oksana, what do you think about this question? Um, what are the international media getting right and, and what are they getting wrong? I um, receive a lot of uh, questions uh, about specifically role of Russian journalists, independent Russian journalists have to say. And uh, I when I look at this um, movement out of Russia, of those who actually, uh, in my opinion, uh, need to stay and apply efforts to build democracy in Russia, because if not them, who will uh, fight against Putin (laughs) except for Ukraine? I think um this is what uh, probably international community should ask all those people who uh, are now uh, falling like snowflakes on European countries and asking for um, like some um, support because uh, in my opinion they should, apply efforts to defend democracy and uh, fight against Putin. Uh, This is the question that I would like to ask all of them, why they, like, I do not see this fight, why there is no real protest against the war. Because uh, we used to live in a kind of dictatorship, uh, we had Yanukovych, and it was very, very, uh, really uh, dangerous. It was hard, but it was so important to fight for democracy that I, I really 
have a lot of questions to this situation. And uh, another problem is connected with Russian TV channels and propaganda, which is still broadcast, for instance, in Europe uh, at European satellites, uh, not less than nine Russian propaganda TV channels, they continue to broadcast and their budgets continue to grow. And uh, there is a big question why they are not uh, sanctioned yet because Russian propaganda is a huge crime. This is the crime that led to mass uh, killings of people, to atrocities, because uh, those Russian soldiers who come to other country, they, uh, it seems to me they commit atrocities because they do not believe that Ukrainians are humans. They were told by Russian propaganda that we are not humans, so you can do whatever you want. Russian propaganda made um, it all possible. So I believe debunking fakes is not enough. I believe uh, Russian propaganda should be uh, brought to court and those who uh, committed, those who broadcast it, they should be um, they should be uh, accountable, made accountable for this. They should be tried in this international criminal court. This is a huge crime, and I'm afraid there is not yet enough of understanding of this uh, issue. But we see what this Rus Russian propaganda has done. We see uh, how it has resulted into... Um, really terrible uh, situation. 22 journalists were killed in Ukraine uh, over the last two months. Can you imagine that? Uh, I live in European capital and right now there is an um, uh, alarm signal because uh, there is a threat of uh, Russian shelling. This is possible. This became possible only because the way was paved by Russian propaganda. So why those Russian TV channels still broadcast on European uh, satellites? Why Russian propagandists still speak in the air of European uh, television? And uh, there should be sanctions and this, uh, everything, they, this should be brought to uh, accountability. And uh, one little, <laughs> the last thing, uh, Angelina mentioned that um, other journalists have to cover uh, really very emotional things. Um, they have to take pictures of those, um, again, atrocities. And a lot of other journalists experience themselves either, you know, this um, shelling or their houses were ruined or their friends or family were killed. For us, it is really emotionally very hard, but we tend to discuss everything. We have millions of chats and we discuss with colleagues, we consult how to report on it. Because for us, journalism and professional reporting is a value which we um, really uh, care about. This is why we remain 
uh, critical. We, we ask questions. Yes, we have this United Marathon on television, but uh, you can see a lot of questions in internet media, in uh, social networks. And uh, we have a lot of different um, unions or hubs that were created uh, among journalists as horizontal communities in different cities. Like when journalists moved out of uh, another city, they had to relocate because of security threats to another city and they join efforts and they start to collaborate because for them, the value is to report about the situation in their um, hometown, about not only about war, but also about its consequences, about humanitarian crisis. So I really appreciate here the work of our regional journalists and actually <laughs> all journalists that this is really um, very heroic work, taking into account that they are really hit by this war and they have to be strong. Thank you. Thanks very much, Oksana. I agree with everything you say. Um, Volodymyr, uh, we are really um, over time, but I want to give you uh, a chance to respond to this because I'm sure that, that you bring a, a, a very um, a key perspective given that you work with a lot of international journalists and I see you frequently commentating uh, to the international media about the situation in Ukraine. What's your view on how the international media are covering this war? So I think uh, I will make three points. Maybe I love uh, the, the figure three, uh, but I will try to be brief. I think one of the key things is that international media are much better uh, covering in my subjective views than, for example, it was some years ago. So they, they, they show a lot of more of understanding what's going on. But I will, I will make three points. The first is that what is needed to enlarge, enlarge the picture is to, is to really to show the deep roots of Ukrainian struggle. So, and that's what we, we are trying to do at Ukraine World. So it's, it's not enough to talk about these hot events. It's, it's, it's really important to go deep in history and in, in context to explain it because uh, Ukrainian fight is, has not started in 2014. It started decades and centuries before. You will not understand Ukrainian resistance right now uh, without two or three Maidans, you know, so from uh, in the in the past decades. You will not understand these Maidan revolutions without Ukrainian dissident movement. You will not understand Ukrainian dissident movement without the resistance during the Second World War. You will not understand this without Ukrainian independence in, in early 20th century. And going back and back into 19th century, Cossacks of the uh, 17th century, and <clears throat> as, as, as deep as, as medieval Rus with the center of Kiev, etc. And it is very important to understand it because the Ukrainian political identity, which was always this grassroots identity, anti-tyrannical identity, a, a political culture which is based upon the idea of uh, horizontal relations between communities and not the, the vertical relations with the Tsar, etc. It was always there during decades and uh, Russians tried to oppress it, but it, it is now really fight, fighting for its uh, existence. The second issue uh, I think we, we, we should raise is what is fascism and what is imperialism. So 
in the past years, uh, so many good minds of international media and experts were, you know, seeking roots of Ukrainian far right, and they did a good job. I mean, this is always a, a problem, the far right movements, but really, it seems to me that they uh, kind of uh, didn't notice the real fascism which was going on, because the real fascism is not a marginal movement with certain statements. The real fascism is when you accumulate state resources and, and build a state vertical, which which uh, totally erases the society and which has expansionist claims. That's what happened with Russia. And the third point, very quickly, I think that uh, in all these years since 2014, uh, Ukraine has shown that it did change. It did change, and that's what we see right now in the way how a Ukrainian army is functioning, in the way how the Ukrainian administration is functioning, how the society is functioning. So reforms really bear fruit. So, of course, there was lots of criticism that Ukraine is not reforming so much, but we see right now real the consequences of these reforms. And I think it's very, very important that the international community sees that and appreciates that. Thank you so much for that thoughtful remark. And I, I want to, to wind it up now. Um, we are out of time. Um, I want to thank Angelina Karyakina, Oksana Romaniuk, Volodymyr Yermolenko, and Administrator Samantha Power for joining this discussion today. And I'd like to dedicate it um, to Natalia Kharakos, who I read about today on the Institute of Mass Information's website. Uh, a journalist and writer who uh, died in Mariupol, the, the latest known uh, victim, uh, a, a journalist for many years, um, and uh, another, another person sadly lost to uh, what is uh, a heroic effort to, to tell people the truth about what is happening in Ukraine. So uh, from all of us at Internews and at USAID, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and we'll call this Twitter space to an end. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you, everybody.